according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here this morning for the purpose of growth. Let's pause for silent prayer to assure that we're filled with the Spirit and are on the, in the process of learning the truth that will help us to grow. Shall we pray? Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to assemble together to study the life of our Savior. And Father, I pray that we would have diligence in this study. I thank you that you uh, faithfully preserved this story for us through four gospel accounts. And I pray that we would be uh, careful and accurate as we harmonize these four gospels and try to paint the clearest picture we can. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I think it's simple enough to state that uh, as we look at the Gospels, we are looking at the centerpiece of Scripture. You have the whole Old Testament, which is looking forward to the coming Christ. And for 4,000 years, the human race was looking forward to the coming Christ. Then in the epistles, the New Testament, as it were, we're looking back to what Christ did and where we are now because of what he did. And uh, without a understanding of the work of Jesus Christ in his earthly life and his death, um, we don't have a basis upon which to apply any of the teachings of the epistles. I know a lot of churches would simply teach only the epistles and say, well, that's the, that's the part of the Bible for the church, and so we're going to teach Romans through Revelation over and over and over again, and, and, uh, or really Romans through Jude, because Revelation's prophecy, let's not worry about that. <laughs> Churches try to just get with their little practical homilies of the here and now and say, well, Romans through Jew, that's our Bible. But in reality, obviously, uh, 70% of our Bible is Old Testament, and it is foundational, and it does lay forth the, uh, the purpose of God in, in a lot of different dispensations and a lot of different ways. But it's all pointing ahead to the Gospels. And then, obviously, the epistles point back. So this is the centerpiece, is what I'm trying to say. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John form the centerpiece of our Bible record. It's it's quite unique because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. But the Gospels, even though they're written in Greek, they belong in the Old Testament. That is to say, dispensationally speaking, the activity that occurs in the Gospels when, when Christ was baptized, when he ministered, when he lived, when he taught, everything that he did occurred during the dispensation of Israel. It was all Old Testament activity. The church does not begin until Acts chapter 2, which if you're a part of our Sunday evening series, you've been learning about the book of Acts, and Warren Dowd's been teaching it, and I had a few classes on, in Acts chapter 2. The church begins in Acts chapter 2. So although the New Testament, as far as our books are concerned, begins at Matthew 1.1 and takes you all the way through Revelation, the, the, the chronology of it, the beginning of the church, is not until Acts chapter 2. So that's why, again, the, the Gospels are a hinge. A part of the written New Testament, written in Greek, but the activities that occur there all occur in an Old Testament context. And so I think we keep that in mind and do ourselves some, uh, some big favors as well. All right, last week we discussed why there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we observed that Matthew was the Gospel of the King. And uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingship of Jesus Christ is, is emphasized more than any other Gospel. 
Uh, it is written primarily to a Jewish audience. The perspective is primarily looking forward to their coming Messiah as the son of David, the king on the Davidic throne. And so we find the emphasis of the king in Matthew. Mark was the gospel of the servant, much more action-oriented, uh, very few discourses and verbal messages. Ma- uh, Mark records the action. He records the, the work, as a servant would do. The servant's concerned about the work. And that's what Mark, the Gospel of Mark is involved with. Uh, the Gospel of Luke focuses on the humanity of Jesus Christ. Luke was the Gentile author of, the only Gentile author of, in the Gospels. Uh, the only Gentile author of the New Testament, for that matter. And, uh, the humanity of Jesus Christ is stressed in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, John is the Gospel of Deity, stressing the deity of God the Son, and we'll be looking at some of those passages this morning, especially John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And we'll talk about those issues as well. So, the Gospel of the King, the Gospel of the Servant, the Gospel of the Man, and the Gospel of God. If you want to just boil them down into basic descriptions. And as we charted it for you last week, if you're comparing Matthew to Mark, obviously a king versus a servant, uh, a king has to have a genealogy, a servant does not. Likewise, if you're contrasting Luke and John, a man has a genealogy, deity, of course, has no genealogy as we understand genealogy. So you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the two that have genealogies are the gospel of the king and the gospel of man. Because a king needs a genealogy, if he's a legitimate king, that is, and a man has a genealogy as a part of his humanity. I thought I was going to sneeze there. This is my worst month of the year. (laughs) This is the month where I vow I'm going to leave the state forever. All right, I think we made it. So, we're dealing with genealogies, and we looked at them to some extent last week, and I want to boil it down a little bit more specifically here today, because of why the genealogy matters, why it mattered then, and why it doesn't matter a hill of beans today. God doesn't care who your parents were, doesn't care what race you are, doesn't care what color skin you have, doesn't, that doesn't matter one who, as far as the uh, salvation is concerned, or the Christian way of life, or any other such thing. So join me in Genesis chapter 3. And we'll start to take a look at this. Genesis chapter 3. And you've got these in your printed notes uh, from last week. Uh, you've, had, you've had this teaching before, for instance, in the, through the Bible series. Um, we've given you this chain of events in times past, and we'll probably do so again many, many times. Uh, if we can do this often enough to where you can teach it yourself and have it backwards and forwards and teach it in your sleep, then maybe we've taught it enough. <laughs> But if you can't if you can't rattle off these uh, these links in the chain, and if you can't uh, come up with the scriptures quite yet off the top of your head, then we need some more review. This should be fundamental for every believer. Genesis chapter three. What's happening in Genesis chapter three? Well, the fall of man. Genesis one and two is creation. Genesis three is the fall. All right. And in the consequences of the fall, of course, Adam and Eve sinned. The entire human race sinned because they were the entire human race. All of us were in Adam at the time when uh, Adam and Eve sinned, and so therefore we are all sinners accordingly. But in the promise, uh, or in the actual judgment, comes a promise. And for this we key in on Genesis 3.15. 
and uh, the Lord who is speaking to the to uh, the serpent. And uh, he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. Now, he obviously has to be her seed. And you shall bruise him on the heel. So, what we have here in Genesis 3.15 is sometimes called the protevangelum. That is the prototype gospel, the first gospel. Didn't realize I had to back up so much just to get to last Wednesday. <laughs> but let's start talking about why genealogy matters, and this is simply uh, genealogy promises. G-E-N-E-A-L-O-G-Y. Genealogy promises. Because it begins with Eve, the promise that was made here of the seed of the woman. This was the first promise in Genesis 3.15. Yes, man now has a sin problem. (laughs) Yes, man is going to be driven out of the presence of God. There will be an angel posted at the entrance. They cannot get back into the garden of God. Man is incapable of forcing their own approach back to God. Man is incapable of deserving their own approach back to God. The only way man will ever be restored back into relationship with God is by an action that God himself does on man's behalf. All of this can be obviously taught in Genesis chapter 3 once you unfold it with the rest of Scripture in view. Now, with respect to the judgment and the curse and fallen man, this promise is given that this serpent, this deceiver, this enemy that uh, it was instrumental in the deception and the, uh, the wickedness that brought about man's fall, he's going to be dealt with. The curse itself is going to be dealt with. And the one to do it is not going to be Adam, and it's not going to be Eve, but it will be a descendant. It will be a descendant. That wonderful aspect of humanity that the angels did not enjoy, by the way, was descendants. Procreation. Find me angel babies if you can. They're not in the Bible. Angels are neither married nor are given in marriage. They were all created in the, uh, if you want to think of it as eternity past or in the creative ages, the dispensation of Alpha. When the angels were all created, they were all created. And the, one, the angels we have today are the angels that were created back then. Angels aren't getting born and, and reproducing and things like that. But this wonderful human feature of procreation, this wonderful human feature of children, is a uh, glorious thing. Because, see, angels are in Scripture called sons of God, and yet so are men. Uh, men are called sons of God. Adam was the son of God, when you look at the Luke genealogy, for example. And yet we have the privilege of having sons of our own, for example, children of our own. And it's quite remarkable. So when the promise is made here that there's going to be an answer to this sin problem, it is going to come through a child. It is going to come through something that angels cannot produce, something that must come from the realm of humanity. So this is the first promise, the seed of the woman. And this will be, in reality, the only promise for quite some time. The only promise for quite some time. Now there will be other clues and indications along the way, there are going to be some things that will cause the adversary to say, oh, wait a minute, I've got to crush that. I've got to keep that from happening. 
See, the adversary realizes that son was going to be born, that son was going to crush his head because God promised it would happen. So if he can keep that son from getting born, maybe he can avoid from having his head crushed. <laughs> right? In theory. Is it any wonder... I'm going to change colors here for a minute just so I don't confuse you in this chain. Is it any wonder that uh, when he starts seeing babies get born, he sees a, a fellow named Cain and he sees a fellow named Abel. This one is of the evil one, it tells us in the New Testament. He is an unbeliever. He never does get saved. His thinking is very much in line with the, with the adversary's thinking. But this one, on the other hand, is godly, humble. He brings the proper sacrifice. He worships the Lord. Now, if you're the devil and you're afraid of the seed of the woman who's going to crush your head, who are you afraid of? Of those two sons. Now, don't get me wrong. Adam and Eve had more children than just simply Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 5 says they had other sons and daughters. They had many other sons and daughters. To try to figure out how many babies you could have women if you didn't have, first of all, sinful bodies, and then secondly, if you had bodies that were going to live 900 plus years, think how many babies you're going to have. All right? We know that obviously uh, Cain was married by the time he murdered his brother and, and fled off to the east and, and uh, built a city and raised his family and so forth. Uh, Abel may very well have been married at that point too. We just don't know. But in any event, with these two prominent sons, and Cain was the firstborn, and we can look, we can glance at this for a moment. In Genesis chapter four, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, "I have acquired or gotten a man child with the help of the Lord." Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. A lot of people, including many of the uh, ancient rabbis looked at this and thought that Cain and Abel were twins. Because the man has relations. That's only referenced once. Uh, Eve conceives. That, that's only mentioned once. And then she gave birth and she gave birth. I think there's, you can make a linguistic argument there and say, okay, they were twins. And that was the ancient tradition. We can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. But however many, plus who knows how many you know, 300 more. However many sons and daughters they had, these were the two that stood out. And obviously the adversary sees Cain's on his side. <laughs> he was of the evil one and he slew his brother. And he sees the seed of the woman that fears the Lord. And so we understand Genesis chapter 4, Cain murders Abel. And we find that this is simply the first of many attempts throughout the... Uh, history of the Old Testament in the adversary's attempt to destroy the seed of the woman. The next uh, infiltration then occurs in Genesis chapter 6. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Remember in the angelic realm there's no Procreation going on, the angels in heaven neither marry nor are given in marriage. But here they see the human race coming about, and they see the human women. And what we have here is the angelic infiltration into the human race. And uh, their children are the 
uh, half-human, half-angel giants of the earth, described here the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. It says in Genesis 6, 4. Interesting also that it says in verse 4, the Nephilim, those are the fallen ones, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men. This is happening before the flood. Obviously the flood wipes out everybody except Noah and his family. So how do these Nephilim come back after the flood? How could the Nephilim have been on the earth before the flood and after the flood if they are human children, which they are not? See, they are the Nephilim, and we've taught this before in different studies. And what we have here, notice, da, 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 when he says, all flesh. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted the way upon the earth. Again, many of the ancient rabbis and Jewish teachers felt that the human race had become so populated, so, uh, so polluted, so tainted by that point, that uh, Noah's family was the last family left in the earth that did not have their uh, genetic strains contaminated by the, the influence of these fallen angels. So we have fallen angels infiltrating the human race. And all this is is, again, an attack on the seed of the woman. If there's no human babies being born, then how can the seed of the woman then arise and conquer, smash, that is, crush the serpent's head? So start thinking about Genesis 6 as the angelic infiltration upon the human race as yet again an attack upon the seed of the woman. After the flood is concluded, we have the second promise, and I'll switch back to black now. The second promise, genealogical promise, and that is where the Lord is called the God of Shem. In Genesis 9, 26 and 27. After the flood, Noah and his family come forth from the ark. There's really no need for God to give any further promises beyond the seed of the woman promise until you get to Noah because the whole human race is going to be destroyed anyway at the flood, other than Noah and his children. So, I mean, obviously, once Seth gets born, you know, we have the addition of Seth as a replacement. We understand the seed proceeds through Seth. But the, uh, the need to specifically lay out that Seth is the child of promise is not necessary, because the whole human race is going to get destroyed at the flood, and we're going to start over with Noah and his three sons. And this is where the next promise comes in. In verse 25, he says, Cursed be Cain, and a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Blessed be Jehovah, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. All right, Japheth has promised certain temporal life blessings, but they're going to come in conjunction with the spiritual blessings that are bestowed upon Shem. And so what we have here is we, we are narrowing... We are narrowing the scope. Obviously, seed of the woman doesn't leave it very narrow. <laughs> if all we're looking for is seed of the woman, well, you know, raise your hand if your mom was a woman. That, that's, that's the whole human race. Okay? That makes it pretty hard to, to 
identify who the Christ is. Anybody can stand up and say, my mom was a woman, I'm, I'm the promised seed. Okay? But we're narrowing the scope. Starting in Genesis uh, 9, 26 and 27, after the flood, which is approximately 2348 B.C. You have those approximate years in your notes from last week. Um, that the scope has just been narrowed down to the line of Shem. We have just eliminated two-thirds of humanity, and we're looking at one-third of humanity, roughly speaking, as the Semitic line. I do not find it accidental at all that beginning with chapter 10 and 11, when Satan decides that he's going to uh, start attacking this again, he starts doing something immediately. He starts lifting up a fellow by the name of Nimrod, and he starts exalting a Hamitic kingdom. And he starts waging war on the Shemitic kingdoms, for example. And the, the rise of Nimrod and the issues there become quite interesting. They're described for you in chapter 10. Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. From that land he went forth into Assyria and he conquered Assyria. Why, was he, why did he hate Assyria so much? Well, part of the warfare against the uh, sons of Shem. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpachshad and Lud and Aram. These were all people that Nimrod attacked as the Hamitic kingdom was exalted. Also, by the way, this is extra credit, no extra charge for this, Nimrod had a wife. We can call her Mrs. Nimrod. Is that, okay. I got a new cell phone. I'm still trying to figure out how to turn the ringer off. I'm trying to figure out what it sounds like when it does ring, and I'm terrified. All right, Semiramis was her name. This is his wife. She started the most ancient of world religions that's still on the earth today and uh, took the original seed of the woman promise and perverted it and gave us the uh, Queen of Heaven mother worship. She gave us the Queen of Heaven mother worship. The Queen of Heaven mother worship. The Madonna and her child goes back to ancient Babylon, goes back to Semiramis, Supposedly, she gives birth to this miraculous child. Supposedly, this miraculous child dies. Supposedly, this miraculous child is brought back to life because of her tears or whatever other mythology you like to put for that. And the mother worship began shortly after the flood, prior to the Tower of Babel, and uh, continues on to this day. Its most recent form being the Roman Church. And there are many studies on that regard as well. If you want to read the total detail, about 400 pages worth of stuff is found in Alexander Hislop's The Two Babylons, and uh, I recommend that very much. All right, but we've narrowed it down from Eve to Shem, from Eve to Shem, from the seed of the woman, now to the line of Shem. Starting in Genesis chapter 12, we are going to narrow the scope even more. We're going to narrow the scope even more. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the call of Abraham. And the Lord calls himself the God of Abraham. 
And beginning with the call of Abraham, we have the significant promises given in Genesis 12, 1-3. And you ought to be able to find these references, and you ought to be able to read them for yourself, and recognize what the Lord is doing. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There it is again, the universal provision for salvation. Remember, sin is a universal problem. Starting with Adam and Eve, the whole human race is plunged into sin. Something has got to be done about the sin of the world. And we know that the Lamb of God is going to take away the sin of the world. But it's a universal problem, total depravity of the human race. It's a universal solution. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 12, 1-3. If you want ballpark figures, Adam and Eve at 4,000 B.C., Abraham at 2000 B.C. And you've just split the middle between, Abraham, between Adam and Christ by noting the call of Abraham. 2,000 years of Gentile history, 2,000 years of Jewish history in terms of their dispensational stewardship responsibilities. Now Abraham had Ishmael, he had Isaac, he had other sons through Keturah, the other Arab tribes. But the line of promise comes through Isaac, and he is called the God of Isaac. And Genesis 26, 2 through 4 takes the Abrahamic covenant and confirms it to Isaac, makes it very clear that the blessings given through Abraham are not going to be realized through Ishmael or through the sons of Keturah. They will have other blessings. He has to bless Ishmael because he's a son of Abraham. He has to bless Esau. He has to bless the Arab children of Keturah because they're all children of Abraham. But all of those blessings are temporal life blessings, earthly blessings. Only Isaac becomes the heir of promise, the heir to the spiritual blessings, the promised seed of the woman that will be born through their line. Genesis 26. See, some people want to know, how come the, how come the Muslims are so prosperous today? How come they got all that oil? How come they got all that money? Why do, why do the Arabs seem to have all these riches and blessings? They're children of Abraham. What do you expect? <laughs> do they deserve all those blessings? Of course not. Are they wild and evil and wicked and devil worshippers because they worship Islam? Of course. They're devil worshippers that worship Islam. Nevertheless, they are descendants of Abraham. And they are blessed because of it. Genesis 26 now, verses 2 through 4. The Lord appeared to him, that's Isaac, and said, Do not go down to Egypt, stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abram. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Isaac, of course, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We know that the line of promise comes through Jacob. And that is confirmed for us in Genesis 28, verses 13 through 15. 
And that's why, from this point forward, and really, starting in Exodus 3 and taking you all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, the most common, you know what the most common name for God is in the Old Testament? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's his most common title, the most common reference, and you can debate the, you know, the Jehovah versus the Elohim versus the El Shaddai, and there's, there, there's tons of names for God in the Bible. But the most common term to refer to him is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis 28, 13 through 15. And behold, the Lord stood above it. That's the ladder that Jacob sees in his dream. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's the promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jews today are defined by those generations, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As I said, the Arabs are Abraham's children, but they're not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, the children of Keturah, they're all Abrahamic, but they're not Jews. Only if they're children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of course Jacob is renamed Israel, and that defines Israel, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That defines Israel. And why is Israel hated as much as it is? You might look for human reasons, but think in angelic terms. The seed of promise is coming through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Christ, when he is revealed, is going to be a Jew. And of course, you and I know historically, 2,000 years ago, that's what happened. <laughs> you know? Never mind the fact that Arabs hold 99%, actually it's, I think it's 99.4% of the geography of the Middle East. 99.4%. That tiny little 0.6% of the land area of the Middle East, that 0.6% is just way too much for the Jews to have as a homeland. 99.6% is insufficient in the Arab's mind. <laughs> for the Jews to have 0.6% of the Middle East territory as a homeland is out of the question. Why so much hatred? Why so much enmity? Well, take it back to Genesis 3 and you'll find out what that enmity really is all about. Alright, now, since we're in the business of narrowing things down, the fact that he's a Jew narrows it down fairly well. The Jewish population compared to world population is pretty low. But nevertheless, there's all kinds of Jews around. How do we know which Jew is going to be the promised uh, seed, the promised Savior, when he arrives. Any Jew could stand up and say, well, I'm a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Especially since Jacob had 12 sons and became 12 tribes. <laughs> that really makes a big question. Well, we know that he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. And we just eliminated 11 twelfths of Israel. Or really, 12 thirteenths, if you want to throw the priestly tribe of, Ju of uh, Levi in there. All right? The tribe of Judah... And where do we take this from? From Genesis 49.10. How do you find Genesis 49.10? Well, this was the message of, of uh, Jacob on his deathbed. 
Here Israel is bless here's Jacob blessing his twelve sons, and thereby there is Israel blessing the twelve tribes. You find this in the at the end of Genesis. Genesis only has fifty chapters. Jacob dies here at the end. In chapter forty nine, Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. And uh, Reuben is mentioned in verse 3, Simeon and Levi in, verses, in verse 5, Judah in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons shall bow down to you. The sovereignty of the twelve tribes is vested in Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. That's the title for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then the key verse in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And I think I put some notes in your Through the Bible Study Guide on that. Until he comes to whom it belongs. Until he comes to whom it belongs. The promised seed coming through Judah, defined there in Genesis 49.10. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So now we start to see, beginning with the promise to Judah, is that not two things. Not only is the sin problem going to be taken care of, that's always been promised ever since Eve, crushing the serpent's head, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. But now we have rulership. We have a scepter and a uh, ruler's staff. A scepter scepter and a staff. Obedience of the peoples. That would be the Gentiles. And this is where so many of the Jews by the time of Christ got thrown off. (laughs) Because they loved the idea of the rulership. Oh yeah, Let's throw off the bonds of Rome. Let's conquer the world. Let's make all the peoples bow down to our Messiah. And that part about the sin offering, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world, dealing with the sin problem, that wasn't as important to the worldly-minded Jews of during the life of Christ as we're going to be seeing throughout this entire study. But it is here where rulership really starts to take hold is in this promise given to Judah If you want to date this, you can date this at approximately 1689 B.C. 1689 B.C. All right. Now, many, many years go by until we get to one more promise. This uh, remains the last promise for hundreds of years. Not only are we looking for a Jew, but we're looking for someone from the line of Judah. That Judah was the ruling line. And Israel went down to Egypt. They had all of their bondage. Uh, they were delivered out of Egypt by Moses the Levite. Okay, so Judah has yet to take preeminence there. Uh, they're led into the promised land by Joshua the Ephraimite. So Judah's yet to actually step up in prominence there. And they settle in the land. And various judges come and go. And they finally demand for themselves a king. (laughs) They don't select anybody from Judah. (laughs) They select a Benjamite. 
Saul. Okay? But it's not until finally God says, no, I'm going to put a man on the throne after my own heart, that we have finally limited, for the final time, we have finally limited the scope of our search for the coming Christ, and that is in the line of David. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16 gives us this promise, the parallel account in First Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. And then, in his old age, David thinks back to that event and talks to Solomon about it in First Chronicles 22, verses 9 and 10. A verse that's often overlooked. With this final narrowing of the scope, by name, there will be some further narrowings we'll see here in a moment. With this final narrowing of the scope, we have just limited our search for the Savior of the world to be a Judean of the line of David who is both going to rule over the world and take care of that sin problem. Both sides have to be dealt with. As I said, when we get into the life of Christ in proper, we start looking at Jesus walking around with the disciples and the messages He gives and so forth. Um, the, the rulership, people were excited about. Let's make Him king, that'd be great. But that sin thing, take away the sin of the world. People didn't want to hear those messages. Even Christ's own disciples had a hard time hearing those messages. Even when he started teaching that the Son of Man must be betrayed and, be, and go to the cross and things, and Peter said, God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Christ had to say, get behind me, Peter. Or get behind me, Satan. That uh, this is uh, why he came into the world. And the cross has to precede the crown. Point in fact, he accomplished this in his first advent, but he's yet to enjoy that. That's going to happen second advent, when, we, when it comes right down to it. So let's turn over to Second Samuel chapter 7 and take a look at this, the promise to David. And keep in mind, this is now really one of the largest gaps between promises, because this is now at about 1042 B.C. or 1000 B.C., if, you, if, if you're like I, I am, and you just kind of like, you know, round numbers, ballpark figures, 4,000 B.C. for seed of the woman, Adam and Eve, 2,000 B.C. for Abraham, 1,000 B.C. for David. And so, uh, you see how that, how that timeline goes from Adam to the cross. Alright, Second Samuel chapter 7, the promise given here of a son. And... Um, of course, it's uh, four chapters before the adultery with Bathsheba. And David didn't forfeit his Davidic promises simply because he committed adultery and committed murder and became quite a jerk there. God didn't look at David and say, oh, well, forget what I said about that promised seed. That's the nature of unconditional covenants. It doesn't matter what man does, God is still going to fulfill his promises. Remember in Second Samuel 7, David wants to build a temple. And God says, nope, I'm not going to allow you to build a temple. He does say, though, verse 12, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Now, there's two sons in view here. There's the literal son, Solomon, who's going to build a literal temple. And, of course, there's the greater son, Jesus Christ, who's going to build an even greater house because he's going to build the church. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Now, obviously, that part there can't apply to Christ because he's not going to commit any iniquity. But it does certainly apply to Solomon. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Alright? First uh, Chronicles 17 says much the same. It is the parallel account in First Chronicles 17. Um that comes there in the priestly record of David's activity. But down in chapter 22 of First Chronicles, even though David can't build the temple, and he knows he's not allowed to, he also knows that he can certainly get the material together for Solomon to build it. And by the time David dies, all the building material is done. The contractors are hired, the agreements with Hiram of Tyre are all arranged, Solomon can step into his kingdom, and he can begin building the temple. And um, it says, He called for his son Solomon in First Chronicles 22.6 and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So here is the covenant promised to David and the instructions that David then passed along to Solomon that the line of the king would indeed come from David to Solomon to Rehoboam and all the way down to Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus Christ. We've narrowed the scope, we've narrowed the scope, we've narrowed the scope. Each step of the way we are determining who this promised seed of the woman is going to be. Now, the Gentiles are not necessarily, they don't have the, the heirs of the Jewish kingdom, They're not, they don't have the promises of the, of the Jewish uh, ruler, or that they have to submit to a Jewish ruler. They're still looking for the seed of the woman. It, which is why it's remarkable, Christ keeps coming across Gentiles that have more faith than all the sons of Israel. <laughs> because they're looking for the answer to the sin problem. They're looking to be reconciled back to a right relationship with God the Father, and they understand the Old Testament promises for what they are. The Jews, though, so caught up in the politics of it all, were looking for a king. Forgetting, of course, that he was also a savior that was going to take care of that sin of the world problem. All right, two final, or, uh, yeah, two final issues here that narrow it down. This is the last name. This is the last person. So for a thousand years now, for an entire millennia, they're looking for a descendant of David to arise and, and become the Christ. All right? But two more items, we'll nail it down. First of all, he's going to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And that really boils it down. 
You know, how many virgins are having babies? How many virgins are having babies? Alright, Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel. We're going to talk about that, by the way, not this morning, but over the course of our Through the Life of Christ series. When did Jesus Christ ever assume the name Emmanuel? You all read through the Bible, right, in 2002, and you read through it again in 2003, and you just started over again in 2004. You're about halfway through Genesis now, I think. All right. When did Jesus Christ ever assume the name of Emmanuel? It's a trick question. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. This is a second Advent title, God with us. It will be uh, his, his uh, name when he reigns upon that throne of David from Jerusalem throughout the millennium. King Emmanuel. In any event, we'll talk about that some more too. But a virgin Bethlehem. Where's the reference to Bethlehem in Scripture? Micah. Outstanding. A little prophet that nobody knows about. Micah 5.2. The wise men knew about it. The Pharisees knew about it. All right, let's grab some of these. Micah 5.2. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. If you get to Nahum, you've gone too far. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah's called a minor prophet, although he does have seven chapters. It's not that minor. Micah 5. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops. I'm sorry. Muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. In other words, Israel is going through some tough times and they deserve it. They're under divine discipline and Gentile nations are afflicting them. And in that kind of, a, of an environment, the Christ is going to be born. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Remember, of all the tribe of Judah, all of the sons of Judah are going to come all the great clans of Judah. And some clans get very large and some clans get kind of small. And some get so small that they actually drop out of what you would think of as clan status, so to speak. <laughs> you know, just by virtue of the number of kids born and, and all the rest. I don't have a whole lot to be able to illustrate this with because my family tree is more like a stump. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> my mom was an only child and my dad was effectively an only child, 20 years younger than his siblings, and we don't really have much extended family beyond my parents' generation. But um, Sharon's got a great family to illustrate, and that's the, the, the tramps down there in Smithville. And... and when they have their family gatherings, they're organized by clan. They're organized by clan, based upon the, the children of the immigrants that came over here and settled in Texas and so forth. Anyway, um, some clans get larger and some don't. When you think about uh, my parents, and they had four kids, and, and out of those four kids, uh, I was the oldest, and I've got four, so my little clan has grown a bit. Uh, Mary is a second branch, and she hadn't had any kids, so that's still pretty small, and then Matt, 
hadn't had any kids. He had two that he married into, but none, none of his own. So that branch is still just him. And Elizabeth has no kids yet. So, you know, out of those four branches, we're the first one and really the only one that's had more beyond that because we had the four. And However that goes, whatever my four decide to do and however that spreads. So it's interesting to note that the Ephrathah clan, the Ephrathah clan, the division within Judah that was located here in this little bread village called Bethlehem, all right, this little out-of-the-way spot, as insignificant as it is, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now that's important because a baby is going to be born, you say, well, how long ago is that? <laughs> be like a kid today talking about, oh, you know, a long time ago. And Zoe could talk to you about a long time ago, and it might be yesterday. You know, they've they got a very limited perspective of a long time ago. But here's a little baby that's going to be born, and yet his going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And we're going to deal more with that when we get into John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. This is how... David calls his son Lord. Remember, Christ threw that question out for the disciples, for the Pharisees, and they had no answer. They said, "The Christ, when he comes, whose son is he going to be?" And uh, they said, "Oh, the son of David." He says, "All right, good answer. If so, if he's the son of David, how come David calls him Lord?" The Pharisees scratched their heads and said, "Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> we can't answer that." <laughs> Because in reality, he is, yes, the son of David, but he's also the son of God. A fact that should have been clear to the Pharisees, and we'll see why from Psalm 2 and elsewhere, why they should have accepted that their Christ was also not only the son of David, but the son of God. So, and yet they went into the constant conniptions over his references to the Father as his Father. Born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Tiny little obscure village an obscure clan, the line of David, and there it is. So, when Jesus Christ is born of a virgin in Bethlehem, as a descendant of David, he makes his claims and is validated in every respect as being the promised seed of the woman, as being the promise, the hope of the ages that's been waited for now for 4,000 years. Quite interesting. As I pointed out, in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus, who later became emperor, destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple to the ground, obliterated all the records, all the evidence, every way that the Jewish nation could identify their Christ. The claims that Jesus Christ made as the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of yada, 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 go back to the son of Solomon, son of David that validated he was, in fact, the rightful heir to the throne as the Davidic son born of a virgin in Bethlehem. <laughs> Those records were all there in the temple at that time. Could not be disputed. The closest they could come to is say, well, you were born of fornication. Your parents weren't married yet when you were born. <laughs> and that's the weakest kind of attack they could make. They could not dispute his parentage, and so they didn't even try. Nowadays, of course... No one can step forward and make a claim like Jesus Christ made in 30 A.D. 
I find that quite extraordinary, and yet the Jewish people are still waiting for their Christ to be revealed. So, these are the genealogy promises. This is why genealogy matters. It matters very much to the Jewish people because their land grant is broken down by tribe, clan, and family. It matters very much to the Christ promises because of how the Christ promises were described (coughs) as being seed of the woman, line of Shem, line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, tribe of Judah, descendant of David. Okay? But now that the Christ has been revealed, now that the Lamb of God has indeed taken away the sin of the world, it no longer matters one bit to you, me, or anybody else. The issue is, do we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? It matters not what tribe we're from. He's purchased a people for his own possession of every tribe, clan, language. I forget how the verse goes there in Revelation 5. Alright? So this is why genealogy studies are crucial to the life of Christ, but genealogy studies are absolutely irrelevant to the church age believer today. They make no difference whatsoever. And in fact, Paul even warns about uh, speculations and endless genealogies and the things that will actually distract a believer from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Because, you know, it just does not matter a bit. The day you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, for me that was September 1973, from that day forward, I ceased being a Gentile anyway. Because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. I was, a, I was born a Gentile, I was a Gentile up till that point of time. When I placed my faith in Christ, I became a new creature. All things made new, behold, old things have passed away. I am neither Jew nor Gentile because I'm in Christ. And I hope we can all understand that and make, make uh, proper application. All right, let's spend our last five minutes actually in the Gospels. Turn over with me to Luke chapter 1. You say, I thought we were going to start with John chapter 1. Well, we are, because that's eternity past, and you've got to start there. But before we do, we're going to start with Luke's introduction in, in Luke 1, 1 through 4. Luke's introduction in Luke 1, 1 through 4. If you have the notes from last week, or if you don't, you can go home and look at them. Um, you will notice in our Harmony of the Gospels, there are three items that are given in that first section called Introductions to Jesus Christ. And uh, number 1, 2, and 3, simply Luke's introduction the pre-incarnation work of Christ, and the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We will tackle those in order, although we've spent most of last week dealing with genealogy, and I don't think we'll work up too much more of that. Uh, But we'll essentially be following this outline through the course of this study. So let's get a start on Luke's introduction in Luke 1, 1 through 4. And uh, we'll pick up on this. I'm just going to give you a taste of this today, and then we'll move on to this next week. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Keep in mind, that's why we're going to go to John 1 next week and talk about the Word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, Most Excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. This is Luke's introduction. And what it tells us is that a study on the life of Christ takes homework. It takes research. It takes a careful and thorough study. And this is exactly what Luke undertook in order to write his gospel. God did not 
simply record under divine inspiration. He did not simply record a singular biography called The Life of Christ. He recorded four accounts, four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you want the whole picture, you've got to read all four and put them together. And uh, Luke is saying here, in his efforts, he's trying to put together a chronology, he's trying to put together an account as accurately as he can to Theophilus, and we'll talk about him next week, um, but Luke had to do his homework because Luke wasn't there. Luke wasn't there. He wasn't one of the disciples. He wasn't one of the fishermen. He wasn't even in, as far as we know, he wasn't even in Judea at the time of the life of Christ. He's a, he's a Gentile physician from Antioch, if you believe the traditions. We know he's a Gentile physician. Uh, Antioch is as good a place as any <laughs> for a Gentile physician to come from. But uh, I believe he's from Antioch. I believe he's a Greek-speaking Gentile physician. I believe he's Titus's brother. I believe that he uh, uh, accompanied Paul all the way to Rome and beyond, and that he wrote Luke and he wrote Acts and, and uh, all the uh, things there surrounding Luke as a person. Well, we'll tackle more of this next week, but just uh, take this to heart that um, this takes a lot of homework. It takes research. It seemed fitting for me, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. And so that's what we're going to do in the process of this Life of Christ series. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness each and every day. We rejoice at how faithful you are in our lives, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Yes.